If you brought a copy of Scripture, you can find Genesis chapter 29 as we continue in our series, Faith of Our Fathers. And I have to say up front that uh, if you are familiar with the Bible, then you know that there are some stories that are just, they're just, you can't make them up. They're so crazy. And, uh, and so if you're not familiar with the Bible and you read through them, sometimes you read these stories and you think, oh my goodness, how can this be happening? Why can they, why would they act like this? And just a couple of things to remember. Sometimes the answer is found in the cultural setting. Sometimes the answer is found in the people group. More often than not, the answer is just found in the fact that we are all sinners. And depravity uh, sort of unpacks itself in different ways, always has, always will. Man will always look for ways to resist the known word and will of God. So it's good to keep that in mind. And also the fact that the Bible doesn't put filters on the characters that it, that it depicts. It doesn't, uh, the Bible isn't a Hallmark movie, okay, that has a little blue ribbon every time. Well, there is. I mean, Jesus is coming back, amen? There's a blue ribbon. But the fact of the matter is the Bible paints us not in all of our glory because we don't have any in and of ourselves. It paints us in all of our gory which we have much of. So with that, Genesis chapter 29, as we continue with the story of Jacob. Now, Jacob is a follower of God, barely, but he is. And and by the time we get into this story, he's a full-on polygamist. A genuine Mormon poster boy is what he is. But he looks more like a pun than a poster boy. And any man out here who would think, man, four wives, are you kidding? That'd be awesome. You can have his miserable life. Because if you know anything about it, it is miserable. It's filled with intrigue and fighting and resistance and irritation and jealousy and strife and hatred. And I'm talking, not, I'm talking about the kids the whole nine yards. Then you got Esau, who, <laughs> you know, Esau, is, is he out there? Is he going to jump me anytime? So if you've been with us, you know we've been studying this Abraham, or rather Jacob is the end of the trifecta of Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. Uh, he is the deceiver. He's the one who is always running ahead of God. Uh, and so he deceived his brother Esau for a birthright. He didn't need to deceive him for her. He went on to deceive his own father for a birthright. He didn't need to deceive him for her. And then he took off on the run. And as he did, I mean, trying to always go ahead of God, he smacked right into God. God revealed himself to Jacob and showed him that in spite of his deception, God was with him. And how, I mean, there's grace all over this story. He goes on with his 400-mile trek, goes off to find a wife. He, he does, but, he, but only to run into a greater deceiver than himself, his future father-in-law who dupes him into marrying the unlovely Leah. He does eventually get Rachel. Now he's got a couple of wives, and you throw in a couple of concubines, and it's a mess. It's a real mess. And now you have Leah. Leah is, you know, God still loves this unlovely one, right? In fact, we're all Leahs here, spiritually speaking. All of us are spiritually unlovely. But that's the reason why the Bible says God shows his love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. So 
But I want you to know, so I want you to know, this is where we left off. We left off in verse, uh, in verse 30 of chapter 29 where it says, Jacob went into Leah and he loved, I'm sorry, went into Rachel and loved Rachel more than Leah. Served Laban seven years. But notice, notice in juxtaposition the next verse. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. It's interesting from... If you, if you look at it, the contrast here is very powerful. From Jacob's perspective, he loved, he loved Rachel more than Leah, but from God's perspective, who sees the true heart of the matter, Jacob didn't love Leah at all. In fact, he uses the word hated. Very powerful. Uh, nevertheless, God does open up Leah's womb over and over again. And we see that in verse 32. She conceived, bore a son, called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me his son also. And she called him Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And she called his name Levi. So again and again, God opens up the womb of Leah. And by the way, she would end up having eight of the 10 famous 12 tribes of Israel along with her concubine. Rachel, on the other hand, is deeply loved but she is suffering infertility. And so she has a different form of suffering. And the Bible is very blunt about it. It simply says, Rachel was barren. So, class. Who had it worse? Who was worse off? Rachel or Leah? Rachel who could bear no children or Leah who could get no love? Our story now focuses on these rival sisters and their exasperating pursuit, and by application, ours, of lesser loves. Consider Leah. She's the unlovely one. She's the homely one. She longs for affection. And don't we all? Amen? But if my life is so wrapped up with longing for affection, then affection I must have. Leah thought by, be, by giving Jacob children, she would earn his love, his affection, and his honor. And if you notice just from the reading of that passage in verses 32 through 34, she has Reuben, she has Simeon, she has Levi. And, and she says when she has Reuben, she says, now, now my husband will love me. When she has Simeon, now my husband will stop hating me. And when she has Levi, whose name means to attach, now at least my husband will be attached to me. Notice the diminishing hope as she goes. And finally, in verse 35, she has Judah, whose name means praise. This time I'll praise the Lord. Verse 35. This time I'll praise the Lord. In other words, maybe he'll love me. Maybe he'll quit hating me. Maybe he'll at least be attached to me. Maybe he'll just at least praise God with me. This is her life. She's not getting what she desires. Her hopes are dwindling. Four boys, no joys. If your life is wrapped up in affection, then affection you must have. 
The poor girl never got what she wanted in life. The poor thing had to be content with a boy, Levi, who would be the forerunner of the priesthood of Israel, and another one, Judah, who would be the forerunner of Jesus. Think about that. Now, some of you girls are in marriages that are really, really hard. You've been given children, but you have not been given love, and I'm sorry for that. I hurt for you. Your culture says, divorce the bum. God says, I still love you. Hang in your marriage. I'll hang on to you. Who knows? You might be raising up the next Billy Graham. Leah's children would literally change the world. They still are. All from a mother who never knew earthly love. And just a caveat to you husbands. And a clarification. The caveat is this. Abuse in any form is diabolical to God. Be it emotional, effectual, and especially physical. And if, if you are involved in any of these things, and especially physical abuse, shame on you. Repent and begin to love your wives as Christ loved the church. If you refuse to repent, I'm certain that hell has a certain place for people like this. And just a clarification, when I say hang in your marriage, I'm talking to those of you who are suffering the abuse of not being loved. I am not referring to you who are or have been physically abused. I'm not talking to you. If you are being physically abused, you need to reach out, you need to get out, and you need to get help. All of us desire affection. But if our lives are so wrapped up in affection and affection we must have, then we take what was intended by God to be a beautiful thing and we turn it into an idol. And, we're, and if that's you, you're pursuing a lesser love. How many young ladies have gotten in trouble just for the desire for affection? Now, let's look at Rachel. If my life is, is wrapped up in children, then children I must have. This is the lesser love of fulfillment. Deeply loved by her husband, but no fruit to show for it. In fact, she is, she's at the end of her tether. In, in chapter 30, in verse 1, she says, Give me children or I die. Because, by the way, back in that culture, if you were a wife without a child, you were as good as a dead woman. And so Jacob responds in verse 2. He says, Who am I, God? He gets angry. Who am I, God? I, I can't produce the fruit of the womb. Hey, Jacob might have been ticked off, but his theology is really good here. Because, like Psalm 127, verse 3 says, the fruit of the womb is, that's his reward. That's God's doings, right? 
Jacob's theology is good, but Rachel's is not. She has chosen a lesser love. If my life is wrapped up with children, then children I must have. And who needs modern science when a concubine will do? And so she gives her concubine to her husband, all of this out of a heart of jealousy and contempt for Leah. And, well, she says, and she gets Dan and Nephtali. It says in chapter 30 and verse 8, I've wrestled with my sister and I prevailed. So she names her kid Wrestler. So now Leah by now, she's not producing anymore. She's had four kids. She stopped producing. So hey, two can play at this game. She grabs her concubine, gives her. This is what I mean by Jacob being more like a pawn than a poster boy. And so voila, Gad and Asher come along. If my life is wrapped up with children, then children I must have. Lesser loves, not wrong as a desire, but certainly wrong as an idol. And when we make anything, if we make our children and any, any of our desires, when they become idols, then we stoop to superstitions. When our desires, again, become idols, we often stoop to superstitions. Then and now, unproven, half-baked health, scientific, and medical theories by expert this and expert that have, they have, you know, they lead to, usually they lead to frustration, disillusionment, and they almost never have anything to do with faith. Why do I point that out? Well, look at verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben, that would be the firstborn of Leah, went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, it's a small matter that you have taken my husband. Would you take away my son's mandrakes as well? Oh no, not the mandrakes. Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your your son's mandrakes. You know who was controlling the bedroom here. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. Sex for mandrakes. It was a Mediterranean plant, kind of like a plum fruit. In fact, even the Hebrew word carries the idea of love. In fact, it was called the love apple. It was thought that the mandrake was an aphrodisiac and that it, was, it would promote fertility. There's not a lick of science to go with any of it. But they bought into it. Rachel bought into it because that's what superstition does. And why? Because she banked her fulfillment, her joy, her entire sense of purpose and meaning was wrapped up in having children. So Rachel asked for mandrakes because she believes she'll get pregnant. Don't miss the irony here. Leah sells them to her for a one-nighter with Jacob. The rest of the text says Leah gets pregnant and has a child, Issachar. By the way, Rachel would have to wait three more years to get pregnant. Sovereignty over superstition every time. 
This is crazy. Rachel buys the mandrakes. Leah gets pregnant. I, and I like to imagine, I like to imagine uh, uh, Leah talking with Issachar later on and at breakfast one day and Issachar says, you know, Mom, I, I know so much about all my brothers and the circumstances around their birth. Could you tell me about the circumstances around mine? Mom says, never you mind. Eat your mandrakes. <laughs> Leah would go on to have a couple more kids, a girl, a, another guy, and a girl, Dinah. But her response, I don't want you to miss her response even when she has a couple more kids. And this is in, in verse 20. Now my husband will honor me because I've given him six sons. Here's Leah still, sadly, still looking for the lesser love of affection. Now back to Rachel. Three years later, she does. God opens up her womb. Finally, she conceives, and it's not because of the mandrakes. And the, the, the scripture couldn't make it clear. Look at verse 22. God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. After all that, you see, there's prayer, God listened. There's providence, God opens her womb. And then there's Joseph. Joseph comes along. By the way, and we, he'll become famous, we know, but by the way, you know what Joseph means? It means add to. That's what his name means. Why do I tell you that? Why, why would Rachel name her firstborn add to Joseph? Because look what she says. She, she says at the end of verse 24, and she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son, because one wasn't enough. Now, she would get that other son, but you get the sense that she was never satisfied, always a seeker of lesser loves. Not bad loves, just lesser loves. And it shouldn't surprise us that her life was wrapped up with children and children she would have. Augustine very famously said to God, he said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. On Valentine's Day, 1989, Abigail Van Buren, otherwise known as Dear Abby, posted in her column a poem by a 14-year-old boy. This will be the third time I've shared this in 20 years, but never a more apropos time than this. The title of the poem is Present Tense. Here's how it goes. It was spring. But it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and respect I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature, mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted, 
the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. What if, what if what you want so badly, so deeply, so passionately, so absolutely was really a lesser love? Not a bad love, not a sinful love in and of itself, but one that has replaced a greater love, and your greater lover. A few years ago, our staff went through a book called The Justification of the Pastor. And uh, I thought, okay, we'll go through it. Jared Wilson points out in his book how easily even ministers of the gospel find their very identity in the ministry itself. And the book began to cut me very deeply. And I realized that I was guilty of adultery. In fact, I thought to myself, have I made ministry, accomplishments, successes, my lover? Have I committed adultery by way of ministry? And I repented. Who is, what is your true lover? Is it your husband? Is it your wife? Is it your child or your children? Some of you are committing adultery with your jobs, with your reputations. Let me tell you something. If it's not God, it's a mandrake. A lesser love. And God, if you know him, will eventually get you to the place in your life when you can truly say, not just quote, but truly from your heart, say with the psalmist, who is have I in heaven but you. And on earth, there is no one that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart will fail. My health, my marriage, my children, my aspirations. But God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion. Can you bring yourself there? Can you get there? The Lord Jesus said to a great church, the church at Ephesus in the book of the Revelation, he said, you've got it all together. All the cogs are working together. You're orthodox in every way. But you have one problem. You've left your first love. Please notice that Jesus did not say that you, they quit loving. We never stop loving. We just replace lovers. That's what we do. 
And sometimes it's almost unwittingly. We don't even realize it until it's there. Our hearts are completely upon our need for affection, our need for a child, our need for a job, our need for accomplishment and recognition. And that which is good in and of itself becomes an idol. For some of you, the idol might be some substance. Have you replaced your greater lover with a lesser lover? That's the question here. I love Jesus' counsel to the church at Ephesus. It's the greatest counsel in all of the Bible. You will not find better counsel than this, ever, anywhere. And it's simple. Here's what he said to them who had left their first love. He said, remember. He said, remember from where you've fallen. That's a point of reference. There's a time. It wasn't always this way. In other words, if you know Christ, there was a time where he was your greatest lover. You weren't pell-mell after all these other things. So he's taking us back. He's taking you back. Remember from where you've fallen. And he says, repent. That's, that's what we have to do. We have to acknowledge the sin of idolatry, confess it to God, and then turn from it. And then, I love this next one because it's not like he says, now reinvent the wheel. Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. No, he says, repeat. He says, do the first works. Jesus is saying, if it worked before, it'll work again. If you remember and repent and turn back to him, put those idols where they belong and make your greatest and greater lover your greater lover. God will give you peace that has eluded you. Some of you have never placed your faith in the great lover, the Lord Jesus who died and rose again for you. That's where it starts. You've never trusted him as your personal Lord and Savior. Humble your heart and repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. And may God make himself very real to your hearts and minds today. Be your true north and greater lover. God, it's with this that we come before you this morning, recognizing that we can be so much like Rachel, so much like Leah, replacing our greater lover with things that are less and we repent and we ask you to renew our spirits and our joys all for your glory and a bigger picture of you we pray in Jesus name Amen let's stand